0: It's the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. I'm Brendan O'Meara. You know, how would I describe this latest episode? It's crazy. (laughs) That is Jessica Abel, at JCC Abel on Twitter, A-B-E-L, joining me for episode 53 to talk about her book, Out on the Wire, and her latest book, Growing Gills, about demystifying the creative process so you can get the work done. Now, Hattie Fletcher of Episode 46 fame says that just because something is structured doesn't make it any less artful. And that's at the heart of Jessica's work, at least at the heart of Growing Gills. She lays out systems and reviews and worksheets that allow you to have a clarity about your creative vision. And before we get to the show, you know what I need. I need reviews. If you have found any value in this episode or any of the previous 52, take 60 seconds and leave a nice review. It'll help with the visibility of the podcast, reach more people like yourself who did creative nonfiction, and, you know, it'll just keep gas in the metaphorical tank so this thing can just keep going, gain momentum, and reaching and encouraging more people to pursue work in the genre of creative nonfiction. So uh, share this with a friend, subscribe, and have fun. This is cartoonist, teacher, and writer, Jessica Abel. You know, first start off, I, I know you, you said your father, like I read that your father was a literary agent, correct?
1: Yeah, and he I, is a literary agent. Yep.
0: A, sorry. And I, and your mom, what does she do? I can't remember.
1: She's a, uh, she's a writer and an editor.
0: Okay. Very nice. So this this kind of stuff sort of like bubbles in your bloodstream. So, uh, and also like you grew up, uh, sort of like, uh, with a punk sensibility. So
1: like, where did that come from? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That's a, um, that's a hard question. Where did the, my punk sensibility come from? Maybe from my mom. I don't know. Like, uh, there's a certain, um, I mean, it's partly it's generational, you know, like I'm 47. So there's a, Gen X sort of basic skeptical kind of point of view on the world that I share, um, certainly not everybody in my age group, but there's a kind of, um, core skepticism that comes into things. And I think, and, and a sense of like, you know, we, if something's going to happen, we're going to do it on our own in some way. Right. And, um, that is a big part of who I am.
0: Yeah, the punk culture is very DIY, so that must have appealed to you at a very young age and really carried you for the next 20 years.
1: Yeah, I don't know that I thought about it that hard initially. You know, I don't know that I kind of um, identified that the DIY part was really appealing to me. Some people do. I don't know that that was really the case for me. What did appeal to me was this, just a stance of just, you know, the oppositional basic, Thing of of questioning everything around and I don't even know how to put it. It's like they're just when I first saw people, you know, kids who were punk, hanging around um, on you know, lolling around on cars and just like being themselves, being obnoxious. I was like, oh yeah, that's <laughs> 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 that's how I want to be, you know. And it just hit me at the right time that you know that was the model for, I don't know. I mean, and, you know, additionally, the people who you meet and, you know, most of the people, most of the friends I had in high school were also self-identified, you know, into that sort of punk, you know, culture. And, um, they were people who tended to be really thoughtful and, you know, um, I think that the essential, I guess when it gets down to it, and I haven't really been asked this question before, which is why I'm stumbling around on it, but like the, um, I think the essential thing is like, uh, it's a critical stance to the world Mm. and, um, critical thinking is key to, to me, to being sort of having that punk sensibility that you can't just accept things at face value. And, um, so most of the people that I knew who were sort of in the same subculture had great brains, you know, they thought good thoughts. They were really interesting people who were interested in lots of things that were not kind of received from mainstream culture. And, um, that might mean great literature. It might mean philosophy. It might mean, um, music, you know, it was all kinds of stuff.
0: Would you say that that helped you question assumptions as you were developing as a, as, as a young woman and then coming into your own as an artist?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. But there was never, I mean, you know, it it can be a handicap too, that like, there's nothing, there's a lot of things in mainstream culture that are fine and you can just kind of roll with it and you don't have to make things hard for yourself. Right. Um, so there was definitely, I suffered from that, like kind of making things too hard for myself a lot of the time, but, um, but definitely, you know, it's always been really important to me to find my own path and make my own choices about things and, and approach things with, with a critical mind and kind of decide what I really think and so on. And um, kind of getting the knee-jerk negativity out has taken a long time. Mm. I think that I preserve the critical thinking and have tried to get rid of the the kind of anti, you know, just knee-jerk anti-everything kind right. of thing that kind of goes with that when you're a teenager.
0: So what did you think you would be before you took up uh, art as a as a vocation or as you were transitioning into a life where you would feed yourself on your art? What do you think you would be before that
1: i I don't think I had any idea um mm-hmm. <laughs> I was an English major in school, and um that doesn't really suggest much as far as career paths unless you want to be an academic, which i didn't you know I think partly because of the um the way my mom raised me and how she felt about her work life, like I just thought it would be impossible to find anything uh that I would like doing that would be in any kind of, you know, standard office scenario. And so I just kind of never went into the professional world um, at all. And, you know, I worked in restaurants and bars and stuff. And I, I I exaggerate because I got jobs at, you know, I worked in administration at um, some different schools. I was at Northwestern at the, and at the school of the art Art Institute. And I kind of liked doing that, you know, doing, that kind of work. And, um, I could see that I could have continued with that, you know, so not in the, on the faculty side, but on the administration side, it wasn't intentional. It was just, it's like, those are the things that kind of, I came across that I had the skills to do. And it wasn't like a goal, like it might've evolved into a goal if my life had gone a different way, but it it wasn't at the time, like a, a mission, if that makes sense.
0: Right. Uh, When did the maybe the the pain of say not doing the thing surpassed the pain of actually doing it like do you remember an inflection point where like you wanted to make a key transition from you know going whole hog and into the 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 thing capital t i
1: was doing my work professionally you know it was was and continues to be an extremely low paid profession. So it's never been something that was super viable in that way. But, um, while I was working full time, you know, I was doing it on the side and building up my skill skills and so on. And so I didn't, I didn't have that, like, you know, and I liked my jobs, you know, the jobs that I had in my early twenties. So I didn't have that sense of like, I absolutely have to quit, you know, Um, And I wasn't not doing the thing. I was actually doing it. Mm -hmm. There definitely, I remember um, having this moment where I was uh, sort of doing a proto-Gantt chart. You know, I didn't, not literally, but like looking at like the amount of time I needed to spend on making my art in order to keep growing. Cause I was getting, I was getting clients as an illustrator and I was, you know, getting published and so on um, as a cartoonist. And, and I was like, if I'm going to you know, I need more time to do these things in order to grow professionally. Um, and my job takes this amount of time and these things take this amount of time and there just aren't enough hours in the day. And, um, that's, that was a breaking point. It wasn't like a cry for freedom or something. It was like, Oh, this literally is not going to function. Like I can't, I, you know, I have to figure something out here. Um, and what I actually did was I, I, um, and this was not, intentional. Uh, it wasn't like the plan, but, um, so my, um, then future husband and I, Matt Madden moved to Mexico city when I was, um, 28 because I had some illustration clients and so on. I was making some money in dollars and, um, spending it in pesos. I was able to quit my job.
0: So who at a young age gave you the validation you needed to pursue cartooning as as a vocation and put that fuel in your tank that you weren't completely delusional in your pursuit.
1: Um well
0: or I key don't mentor.
1: Yeah, I mean I didn't um conceive of myself as a cartoonist until, you know, like after after I graduated from college probably. Mm-hmm. Like as a as a sort of main identity. I was making comics earlier than that um but sort of thinking this is going to be something I'm going to pursue professionally took me a long time, like I was saying, you know you asked what I was sort of pictured myself doing I didn't know I really didn't know, and I mean I didn't picture myself doing comics either wasn't I just didn't know what I would be doing, like how I would support myself was kind of mysterious to me um, and remain so as a cartoonist this is not this is, that's not an answer to that question <laughs> <laughs> so um but my parents are both um you know they're both connected to the writing world. I won't say that they're like you know they didn't have artistic careers or anything. Um, you know, my mom's uh writing and editing was very much like she's a professional, you know, she worked in like magazines and she worked in, you know, professional organizations that had like internal magazines and sh- she had a job as a writer, you know. So, um and then she became freelance after that and did things like um annual reports and you know, so it's not like she was writing novels. Um, But at the same time, she really was always very um, supportive of me, you know, making art and writing and, you know, being a creative person and so on. And I didn't ask that much of her, frankly, as a kid, you know, like I didn't ask people to acknowledge me as a super arty person. I did very well in school. You know, I didn't – I basically didn't take any art classes when I was in high school. I didn't, you know – declare I was going to go off and do performance art for, you know, Mm -hmm. there's not, there's nothing that they, it wasn't that hard to support me essentially in what I wanted to do because it wasn't that, at the time, what I was doing was just not that out of the ordinary. Right. If you know what I mean.
0: Yeah. It seemed like even from reading the introduction, the early part of Growing Gills, like you were on what you would consider a quote unquote traditional path through, through the academics. You weren't taking the, these like sort of uh, magnet school art tributaries of of the of the education system like you were just doing what yeah. mo- mo- what most people do.
1: Yeah, and and frankly that stuff barely existed then too. I mean like yeah. there weren't a lot of magnet schools around offering, you know, a whole bunch of art stuff. I and mean, there were classes and stuff at my school and I should have taken them. I would have really enjoyed them, but I didn't. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so where do you think your methodical, organizational methods come from? You have a very, very keen skill for being able to break things down into digestible bites. So wh- where does that come from?
1: Um, I think, I mean, I've always been a very um, intense and pretty driven person and um, and had big goals and forced myself through them. Um, but it was a lot of willpower and forcing earlier on. Um, because I have a very strong will and I'm able to do that, but it's painful. It's, it's not good. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, just sort of like making myself come back to something over and over again until I sort of come up with some kind of a solution for it is just kind of no way to live. So, um, I just gradually learned a lot of skills from reading and practicing. Um, one big turning point for me was reading, um, getting things done by David Allen you know, like most, um, artists, I think I was always reading articles about how other artists do it and how do they organize their lives. And I'm so envious of all these people who manage to, you know, get their work done and still have a life and, you know, all that stuff. And, um, you know, that's how I eventually found, <clears throat> excuse me, that's how I eventually found getting things done because I was reading about productivity and trying to figure out, you know, what can I take away from this? And, um, you know, I think also like most people, I had this, um, tendency to, uh, just what I call churn, like sort of churn over stuff. I was, I needed to be paying attention to just continuously, you know, you just have this kind of like, Oh my God, this, Oh my God, that, Oh wait, I forgot that. Oh shit. This, Oh, you know, whatever that. And, and, you know, kind of, um, feeling like it's impossible to, uh, to hold it all, you know, and 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 that anxiety is super draining, and so that's what the GTD Getting Things Done method does is it helps you offload all that stuff into a system um, that then you know that it's there for you. You can put stuff into it. You know, the system being literally a paper like a notebook, or for me it's an app like it's digital. Um, but the you know the, it's there and it's reliable and. It's not going to forget, even if I do, you know, (laughs) and, um, that's just instantly cut my anxiety levels enormously. And, um, and so that was, that's just one of many steps that I took, but it was, you know, people, I think, believe that I'm sort of magical with this stuff. I mean, my students accuse, accuse me of witchcraft occasionally. (laughs) Um, but, uh. It's totally not magic. I mean, I I absolutely had to put this whole thing together piece by painful piece over a series of many, many years. And I, you know, I think that in some cases, like in Growing Gills, I I wonder whether I overdid it sometimes, um, talking about myself and how it is for me. But the fact is that it, um, that people don't really, they, they continue, they want to believe that this is something that just kind of happens. And, um, I think that's really destructive too, because if you don't believe that it's something that you can, that I learned and that if I learned it, you can learn it, you know, then, then you don't ever take control. If you don't take control, then you have to live with this stuff.
0: Yeah. I loved the, the way you were able to braid the, the practical stuff, but also weaved in your story of how you implemented those things. Like you were putting your money where your mouth was. And like, so it was... I, I, I like that. So I don't, I, it's just one person's take, but I don't, I don't think it, it'll be off putting in any sense when more people get this book in their hands.
1: Oh, well, thank you. That's, that's very nice of you to research me there. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's okay. Cause people talk about, you know, about liking my, hearing my story, but it's like, I, I felt, you know, I, I was trying to put in other people's examples and I just kept coming back to like, well, and they're me, you know, yeah. there's what happened with me. There's that example. So, so
0: it's, it's funny you um you write about your your bulldoggedness and stubbornness with with projects which can be which can be a great asset, you know especially when you get into the into the murky middles and the dark forests of the things um but do you ever find that that can sometimes be a detriment or a weakness, and that maybe certain things should be given up on
1: oh absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's a, it can be a real problem for Mm -hmm. me, especially it has been a real problem there. I I heard this great, um, interview recently, um, with this guy named Joey Corinman, I believe his name is. And he, he's talked about the wrong mountain syndrome that like you, you muster all of your powers and you, you know, have base camps and you hike your way up the mountain. Um, and then you get to the top and you realize it's the wrong mountain. (laughs) (laughs) And that's me in a nutshell right there. It's like there, I mean, and I don't want to exaggerate. There's lots of things that I've done that are great. And I'm really glad I had the, um, you know, uh, willpower and the structure and the systems to make it happen. But there's so many times that I don't question early enough, whether I've made the right decision and whether it lines up with my larger, uh, goals. And it's, you I know, mean, I'm trying very hard to incorporate lots of, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I teach students now and I've, you know, because I've realized progressively how important it is, is the idea of review. And like, when do you, how do you incorporate different types and levels of review into your, into your process artistically? And I mean, review of your projects, review of your intentions, review of your strategy, review of your goals and so on. Oh, and dude. so yeah. I've built in more and more levels of review over time. Uh, and that's helped, you know.
0: Yeah. Speaking to that, uh, there's a big reason why uh, with uh, you know, professional sports teams and even uh, levels below that, you know, after the game, they spend hours and hours watching game tape and mm-hmm. learning from what happened and reviewing and then changing the playbook and going forward not just saying well on day one this is the playbook and we're just going to live with it for the whole season like a lot of time you know (laughs) so there's a they just they they move and they adapt and that's exactly what you're referring to with you know having the building in these review patterns allows you to sort of change course with uh you know, with, with whatever you're doing and reevaluating. So it's really a, it's a, it's a good analogy, but yeah, like you really bring it to the fore in growing gills too.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great analogy. And I, I mean, I, I think that um, whenever you do make an analogy like that, I'm like, Oh, of course, like I knew that, you know, but then <laughs> you forget those things, you know? And, and I think one of the things about um, art in general writing and art is that um, practitioners believe Um, And we've been told, we've been sold a bill of goods about this, that it's it is a somewhat magical thing. That if you don't know what you're doing, if you don't have the right kind of ideas, if you aren't absolutely sure about everything, then you're just not cut out for it. You know, and people continue to want to do it, but they're always like, oh well, maybe it's just not really for me because I'm not struck by inspiration at the right moments. I'm not, you know, I don't know for sure that this is. You know, this project I'm I'm I've said I'm going to do it, but I don't know if it's the right project. I don't know if I'm this is my passion. I don't know you know all this stuff, which is it's all just that's just garbage. Like you don't it's not that's not how it works. You know, like you have to build in these kinds of levels of review and and you know you also have to trust yourself to a certain degree and and know that it's not all going to be a known thing ahead of time.
0: Yeah, and the fact is that. Anyone who has like a great idea, whether it's even looking at your work, whether it's like La Perdita, Out in the Wire, Growing Gills, odds are, and you've probably had another hundred that were not good. Like to get to a level of where you have some good ideas, you've got a, a factor of 10 of bad ideas. So it's like you have to push through all those bad ideas to get to some of those good ones and pan for that gold.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, but at, at the same time, I also believe that like almost any idea you have could turn into a good idea mm-hmm. if if you invest in it enough and you find what's at the heart of it. Now, I mean, there there's good and then there's good. You know, there's some ideas that are just kind of like, they just stand on their own and it's really clear. But, um, you know, I've done uh, an entire book about slacker vampires. I've done an entire book. I'm doing work in the middle of, a book about a roller girl on Mars. Like these are not ideas that are on the face of them. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, roller girl on Mars. That's awesome. But like, that's really like, that's a quick, that's a quick read. That's not a 200 page graphic novel. Right. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So, um, but, but it is in fact, like it's much more, there's much more there. Um, and that's because of what I put into it, not because of what it offered me right off the bat. Um, and again, this is about the it's not magic part. It's a lot of work and a lot of strategy and a lot of, you know, making decisions over and over again about how you're going to do this and taking control of it, not letting it, you know, r- live in the realm of sort of fuzzy non-logic. Right. gets back to critical thinking, I guess.
0: Yeah. The slacker vampires. <laughs> I just have this this vision of vampires that should be out going out, trying to find blood, but they're just sitting on the on the couch, just like eating chicken wings or something and playing video games.
1: Well, it's not quite that, but they are um, forced by their um, vampire laws to work for their masters, who create them. And their their the main character is their master is this old world vampire from Transylvania, and he lives in L.A. and he's opened a line of um, He's got some uh, all-night groceries, you know, like corner stores, and so he he makes new vampires in order to work the night shift.
0: Oh my God, that's yeah, I I love it. (laughs) So when when you were when you were younger, uh, like let's say like twenty-five, thirty, like what did a successful artist look like to you? You know, from your van from from that point, and then you know you've obviously got another you know fifteen to twenty years of perspective on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think at the time it's – I don't know how much it's actually changed the idea. Just like I know much more of what the reality inside is, Mm -hmm. you know. I think a a successful artist to me then would have been somebody who, well, A, was able to live off their work. Um, I mean successful in life, not successful as an artist, Um, you know, because there's plenty of people who can't live off what they do and are highly successful artistically. Um and that's always a shame, but true. Um, but so somebody who is able to make a living from what they do um without too many twists and turns. Like I would not rule out, you know, giving talks in the occasional class, but like um full time professorship doesn't mean you're not a successful artist, but it does mean you can't live off your work, you know, like you don't become a full-time professor if you're doing great in your art career financially speaking, which is not to, de- you know, to denigrate full-time professors like myself. Um, but that it's, it's just sort of like the the thing I figured out. And I guess I'm getting confused here in terms of like different times that I thought of different things. Cause maybe at the time I would have thought that, you know, like right. being a full-time prof and, uh, you know, making your art and being well known for it. And having lots of people read it and, um, you know, or look at it or, you know, whatever, whatever kind of work it is. And, um, you know, being in demand for things like major exhibitions and um, doing talks and things like that. Maybe that's what I would have thought in my late 20s. And then now it goes further that where it's like, I, I have no problem with people doing stuff that will support them Um, that isn't their art, like being a professor, but it, but if you're talking about like, what is a successful financially successful artist? It's somebody who has a back catalog of art, whatever it is, writing, um, comics, visual art that sells so that they don't, they can live off this passive income and they have freedom in their lives. They can decide what to do with their time.
0: Hmm. So how did you get involved with the radio illustrated project the very first like kernel that would ultimately sort of like lead to out on the wire but like, how, how did you first get involved with that
1: that was just um that was purely ira um mm-hmm. I, so ira glass uh i had lived in chicago um before i moved to mexico city um that's where i was living and um i did nonfiction comics on occasion for um a local tabloid called the new city and At one point in, I think, 95 or so, Ira had clipped and saved one of my first pieces for them and put it in his file drawer. And then, like, three years later, he's coming up with one of his clever ideas for how to make um, pledge drives less painful, (laughs) which is basically – he's very good at that. He's very good at making them, like, they're not great, but they're less painful than they would be. Um, And so he was like, let's do a – a comic book about the show and called me and I had moved to Mexico city. (laughs) And in the meantime, and because this was 1998, um, I had had this notion, you know, it's like email and websites were just not really a thing. Like he wouldn't have thought of the Google didn't exist, you know, like I'm sure he could have found me if he really looked, but you know, it's not, it wasn't simple like that. And so he actually just looked me up in the phone book, like in the white pages, and called my number in Chicago. And I had um, had this fantasy that people like art directors, uh, you know, illustration art directors would call me uh, after I moved and they wouldn't be able to find me. So I put like a forwarding message on my phone for six months and... Um, and about five months in, Ira was the only person ever to get that message and call me. Huh. Uh, so you know, I pick up the phone in Mexico City, and it's Ira Glass, and it was just like the weirdest experience ever because I was a huge <laughs> fan. You know, we would actually stream it in Mexico. We would stream *This American Life*, which was not easy in 1998.
0: No. So while so, as you were uh, gearing up for that project, uh, you know, what was that experience like as you were? Basically, uh, being a reporter and then taking all those quotes and instead of drawing a pure – instead of writing a pure narrative, you partially did the dialogue and drew it. So what was that like?
1: I was familiar with the basic approach that I was going to take. The thing that was interesting about that project – and then this is the exact same thing that I had to deal with again with Out on the Wire – is that there's a lot of – first of all, it's radio, right? So there's a lot of stuff that isn't particularly visual – to depict. Um, and there's a lot of also, there's a lot of conceptual stuff, a lot of sort of things that I needed to create visual metaphors for and convey in some, some way or another. And so that was a really interesting, um, project for me to sort of figure out how I was going to do that. And in fact, I came up with this, um, approach that, um, works fairly well. Um, which is to uh, use a kind of what I call a meta layer. Now I call it that. I didn't at the time where you have the Ira character in that book, it was Ira and me um, drawn in a simpler style with sort of no background. And we could, we could talk about what was happening inside the, the scene. Mm -hmm. So um, in radio speak, the scene would be the actuality, meaning the the recorded on the spot stuff and then you have the Ira character and the me character, sort of meta Ira, meta Jess, walking into the scene and saying, like, look at how this happened and pay attention to this. And so that's kind of the narration level. So it's very parallel to the way they do um, narrative audio. And I got that the, – the basic idea I got from Scott McLeod, actually, from um, Understanding Comics, which had come out you know, a few years earlier – and the way that he has his character walk into scenes and talk about what what's happening there in the comics language. And how important do
0: you think narrative and storytelling is to our culture these days?
1: I, I mean, I think it's incredibly important. I mean, as somebody who, in my own working style, I'm very narrative arc oriented, the way that I write and the way that I work. Although something like out on the wire obviously is not narrative arc because it's a, uh, it's more essayistic, but, um, but I think it's super important. Um, that said, I, there are other ways, other ways to organize stories, um, that are equally valid, but they're not as easily conveyed to other people. So I think for every, uh, narrative artist, having a strong understanding of um, how the narrative arc works and being able to use those tools is super important. You know, I just taught a a workshop at an MFA program, writing MFA program, and I was talking to a poet about this, and I hadn't ever thought about or had to deal with, like, what what, what, what application does the narrative arc and, like, narrative structures have for poetry? Especially poetry that's not narrative, you know, was not a, a narrative thing. but um still, the tools of figuring out who is the protagonist and what does she want um, and you know, thinking through the the audience point of view and how does the audience can en- you know engage with this stuff, all those kinds of things was immensely helpful for the for the poet. Um, it was really interesting because it, it it's not that it would then turn into you know, a classic sort of three X structure, you know, kind of story. But um but she got control of this of the story she was trying to tell by using that tool.
0: Right. Yeah. And how would you assess um, sort of the state of of podcasting and narrative storytelling? It's uh it's kind of a booming thing of late a booming medium and i wonder like how it's they if you've spent uh, a a lot a lot of time with some really talented people with great you know with great ambition and great taste so i wonder like how how would you assess the work that's being done on you know
1: well i mean the whole reason i did what i did is that it's amazing i mean the work that the a lot of um narrative audio uh producers is making is just like among the best narrative work in culture right now. Now, obviously that varies. It's not like every single producer, everything in every single story. But, um, the, you know, the reason I took the approach I did was like, these people are incredibly good at this and they do it week after week. How do they do it? Like, how can they, how can we package up kind of what, what their approach is and what they do in a way that'll be helpful for people, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And what what commonalities would you say that you found from like Glenn Washington, Jad Abumrad, Ira, Stephanie Fu, like all these just, you know, Zoe Chase, all these people like what what did you find across the board that all of them had in common?
1: Well, they all were looking for characters, first of all, you know, they're all looking for um, ideally protagonists, but certainly human experience in which to encapsulate ideas. So even like a show like, um, planet money, which Zoe chase worked for at the time. Um, and, and Robert Smith, they were like, you know, sometimes they have big idea stories and there's like nothing you can do about it. It's not something where you can decide that, you know, it's about, um, you know, you have protagonists to go through, but, you know, it's interesting because, um, Hannah Jaffe Walt worked at, um, planet money at the time as well. And, she was known among the staff for being like a master of figuring out how to tell a very abstract story about economics via first person storytelling or not first person, but like, you know, character based storytelling. And so one of her really famous um, innovations was to tell the story of the housing crisis via this 14 year old girl in Florida who bought, a house with her babysitting earnings. (laughs) And so she found that girl, you know, she found that story and like how she found that was, is actually not in the book because it it didn't, it didn't fit, but it was like, you know, it's all this stuff of thinking through like, who are the people who would be involved? Like, you know, she was working on a story when I was there and actually did follow this a bit, although it also didn't make into the book they're doing about offshore accounts. And she's like, well, somebody's got to actually set up these accounts. Like there are people who are working for these banks in like Belize in this case. And maybe I can talk to them. And so she would like interview people and get sort of characters out of this. So characters are super important because it's the way that we understand information is through how it affects people. You know, at least it's a very strong way that we understand information. Um, So that's one piece of it. And, and another really interesting thing is more process oriented, which is that um all of the people who I talk to have intense editorial systems um, of feedback and collaboration. So in no cases is there a show, you know, like a um, radio lab or you know, this American life, where one person makes it and and that's what you see. It just does not happen. That's not how it works.
0: Yeah, I was going to um, ask you what it was like to sit in on an edit there. That seems – that's pretty intense. It's
1: crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a really – yes, it's very intense. Um, it depends on the edit. I mean the ones that I sat in on the most were at Sta- Snap Judgment, and they are like really intense. I mean the, they're just like intense people aside from anything else. Yes, it, it was it, – like as soon as I saw that, I was just I, – I was amazed at how, I don't know, just like the intensity of it and the, um, I I don't, the, the, the attention of it, you know, there's such respect sort of built into it. Um, I'm somebody who doesn't resist editing very much. You know, I like being edited. I like that process. Um, and so I envied it in a way, even though it was like, really, it could be really harsh. It could be really hard to take. There's just this, there are people who are really like, they're really, really listening, really paying attention. And their, their intention is entirely to make your thing sing, to make it better. And that can be hard to take, you know, but it's exactly, you know, it's, it's, it's what a piece needs to be the best.
0: Yeah, a lot of a lot of times it's it's hard to divorce your own worth from the work. Like it, during these edits, they're not. It, it's easy to maybe take it personally, but it's really it's all about the work sitting in on one of these edits, or, in it. so it's yeah, it's to make the best possible outcome, um, right? Not to be taken personally, of course.
1: Right, and, and I guess, and I people- think that they had to work on their interpersonal like dynamics how they would talk to one another to try to remind everybody this is about the work Um, they definitely ran into issues with that where um, it was you know people would know better and still take it personally because it's just so hard to maintain that distance for that long
0: yeah and i guess it should it might be worth mentioning that like an edit it when it an edit when it comes to uh, narrative radio is kind of like a writer's room, and uh, for TV, where you know they've got the piece, and then they're just the whole team is on there, just feeding it in and almost like dispassionately cutting up, cutting it up, but ultimately to like make it as great as it can possibly be and condense it and compress it and make it beautiful. And it is it, like you said, it's this intense atmosphere that can be you know sometimes belligerent, but ultimately in service of the story.
1: Yeah, I mean, belligerent is bad. If it's belligerent, that's a mistake, I think. <laughs> yeah. it's. I mean, it can be. Um, but I think that if that happens, that's a problem of the critiquer, you know, that that person should get their shit in order. Yeah. You know, excuse, excuse my language. I'm going to have to put an E on this uh
0: <laughs> Ready alert. <laughs> <on this episode. laughs>
1: um, but, I mean, that's not okay. You have to figure out ways to um, be a respectful, helpful, uh, and you know, to a degree, even loving critiquer, that is a huge skill that, that needs mastering. So if that line starts getting crossed on a regular basis, then there's a there's a big problem, I think. Um, but yeah, I think in the, in the, in the basic ideas that the, the producer who's the, the main reporter and or producer of the piece will play it live in a room, um, or in this American life's case, they'll actually read script and then play the same thing with um planet money they'll read script and play clips so they'll have the the tape clips you know edited to to a certain degree and you know as far as they can do it and then they will read the script and 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 then people are listening they're sitting there in the room silently and as soon as it's over they go back through and they and often they'll take notes sort of running notes it'll go back through and um just pick it apart you know just take it apart and um, it just can be really, I think it can be really emotionally difficult for people. And how did
0: crafting and making your uh, Out on the Wire podcast differ from other projects you've done? Like, what was that learning curve like? And what made you want to take on narrative audio after having done the book research and the book writing?
1: It, it evolved it sort of organically in a way, because I um, was thinking about how I could write about or do something about the, um, the book on my, uh, blog and like write blog posts about it and do some stuff to try to get people to pay attention to it. Just some marketing basically. And, um, uh, so I had this idea to, they're just like, I just told you a couple stories from, from planet money, some things that didn't make it into the book. There's lots and lots of stuff that I had that didn't make it into the book. That was really great and really interesting. And, um, so I thought, okay, well I can write blog posts sort of with this other stuff. That would be really fun oh, and I've got tape of this so I could put some like clips in, you know, <laughs> into my blog post. And then, and then I just kind of smacked myself in the face and was like, obviously, this should be a podcast that mm-hmm. just is, you know, dumb to not even think of that. <laughs> so um, then um, also, obviously, uh, because of my um, leanings in terms of narrative, but also because the work, you know, the in- the interviews were all pre-recorded you know the material i wanted to use was pre-recorded and didn't have any inherent structure to it. You know, it wasn't like what we're doing right now where, you know, you have an interview, you know, idea like what you want to do and you're asking me questions and i'm answering, you know, it's all kind of there's just it makes it'll make sense as much as i make sense. Um when mm-hmm. you when you run it even if you edit it a little bit, you don't have to do that much. For me there was no way to do that. I couldn't just like edit down my interviews. Right. So if there was a, if I was going to use this material, I had to do narrative audio.
0: You Had um, to log the tape and
1: structure. I had to log it the tape and, and I exactly. I had to I had to write scripts and I had to narrate it. Um, otherwise, it, it, there was nothing there. Um, and then I was I turned. It turned out I was just enormously lucky that um, I was living in France at the time and another. Um, person who was resident in the same artist residence as I was, um, was Benjamin Frisch and he's an American cartoonist and just happens to be an NPR trained audio producer. So <laughs> if that hadn't been true, it definitely would not have happened. Um, and so, and cause Ben was interested in working with me on this. So, so yeah, that's how it happened.
0: And uh, as you transitioned from out on the wire, and then ultimately into your your teaching and the book that would that has become Growing Gills, a, a such a, a key component of the early part of it is this notion of idea debt, and um, embedded in that is like a lot of people they come up with a ton of ideas, but they don't finish things or don't even start things, or there's a perfect mm-hmm. or a perfect vision in in the head, but. It just can't translate, so people stop or they don't start. And I so like what what systems do you have in place so so maybe you don't slip into idea debt and you, you pay off those debts and you never accrue this anxiety interest.
1: Well, I think that the kind of thing we talked about earlier in terms of review is a big piece of that. So if I have ideas I will put them into my system and, and there is time scheduled to look at them. You know, I know that there's, they're there and, you know, I have a folder, a couple folders full of various little notions here and there, both things for stories, but also things for, you know, um, projects and and other kinds of stuff that I want to do. It's, it's going to be there for me. Um, and so when it's time for reviewing, that's when I do it. And I, I look at it and, um, and try to be strategic about it and not just run up the wrong mountain again, basically. Um, and think about what's going to fit in with my larger goals. And so it's, there's a lot of it that has to do with figuring out for me at this point. I don't think this is necessarily true initially when you're just trying to figure out how to do anything, you know, how to finish anything. But for me right now, a lot of it is about, um, trying to be much more strategic about what I choose.
0: And as you choose these, these products, inevitably, like if you've chosen the right one, you'll ultimately always run into the dark forest, and, which, is, which is a great place to be. It's a great – you know what? It's a great place to have been, correct? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, I like to say that the dark forest is a good sign uh, of, in a project. Yeah. That, that the project is something that is artistically – worth doing. Now, whether it's going to be successful or not, you know, all those other things is a, a big unknown. But for you, artistically, if you're in the dark forest, meaning if you're in that stage of the project where like you were really excited about it, you started doing a whole bunch of stuff, you made a whole bunch of things, you keep making stuff. And at some point, you're like, Oh, my God, I totally have no control over this. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm totally lost. That's the dark forest. And the reason that happens is that you are stretching, that you are trying to do something that's really hard, that's harder than something you've done before. Um, and you, you know, it, it will stop you for a while and you have to then take the time to, um, work out what the things are that you don't know and, you know, like get sort of get control of the project. Um, but it, but what it means is that you're stretching. It means that you're doing something that you don't know how to do already. And so you're going to be growing from this project, whether or not it is either artistically or financially or whatever, you know, it's successful, it will be a step in your journey that is worth taking.
0: And is it something that you can see coming on the horizon? Like you're getting like when you're writing Growing Gills, you're like, oh, no, I can there it is 13 miles ahead. The road post sign is saying there's the dark forest and I can't turn around. Is it or does or do you just appear inside it? how how does it how do you process it? How do you see it?
1: Well, I think it usually i I know in theory that it's coming, but I forget to think about it, and then it sneaks up on me basically <laughs> and then I'm in it for a few days before I'm like, oh, that that's why it's happening and even just identifying it to myself actually makes it a ton better, like even though it's not uh it doesn't fix the underlying problem of like what I'm trying to figure out acknowledging myself like, oh, dark forest, right. Okay. I need strategy around this. I need to go have a a focus session with somebody and talk about like what the problem is and whatever that happens now pretty quickly for me. Whereas it used to take, you know, weeks to realize that, oh, I've done this before. And even then I didn't really have any way to get out of it. And, um, really what I learned from the audio producers is this idea like that I'd already used, but hadn't sort of defined in this way. So now that I've defined it, um, it's much more useful, which is the, the focus session idea.
0: Mm. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? That's uh, comes towards the end of growing gills and, uh, right. So yeah. the focus
1: session is based on the edit, but it's kind of like, um, a mini version. Cause I really, it's like one person, you know, it's not like a room full of people, although you can do it with more than one person. But the idea is basically you talk, you, you set up a time, a specific time and you basically explain Where you're stuck and why you're stuck to somebody, as as you see it. Like, what is it that you're trying to figure out? How you know why is this hard? Like, what's the what's the thing that every time you get there you get stuck on it? And sometimes it's even hard to define those things. But if you if you can, that's the um, that's the moment when you can, uh, as you explain it out loud using your voice to talk about this will actually change, I find, it changes your relationship with the thing and makes it easier to um, uh, see what's wrong with your thinking. So even if the other person has nothing to contribute, usually they do have something to contribute. But even if they don't, you're going to figure out a lot of stuff that way.
0: So you are, you know, you're, you're, as you, as anyone who reads the book will find that you, you like try to, you know, break things down so they're You can digest it and kind of take some of the overwhelm out of the process. And I wonder, like, what is, what's your, say, your morning routine? As you're like, when you wake up, breakfast, coffee, journal, whatever it is, like, how do you, how do you set up the day so you ensure that you win by the end? And however you define winning, it's just, you know, to make sure you look back on the day and be like, you know what, that was, that was a damn good Tuesday,
1: I wish I had a system that ensured that. <laughs> I totally don't. Um, but what I do do is, so my mornings are pretty similar, but I have kids. So it's really centered around them and mm-hmm. getting them going. Not weekends, obviously, but weekdays, you know, getting them fed and off to school. And, um, and, then, and often um, I do a thing that I think is not a really great idea, which is like checking email in the morning um, when I get up. But I'm not too bad at kind of then ignoring it after I check it uh for quite a while. So what I try to do is so because my mornings are all broken up with family stuff, it's not like concentrated creative time or anything. So I um I try to uh have like I'll kind of clear out my inbox and know that nothing's crazy. And then after the kids go to school, then usually I'll sit down and get to work on whatever the thing is for the day I try to set up the the thing the thing that's going to give you the best chance of having an awesome Tuesday is Monday if on Monday before you get started you set up your list for the day for Tuesday and you you do not overload it you don't put it full of stuff that's like impossible to finish Um, you just put on like you know what your top one to three things is for the next day and you might have a few other things but they're not it's okay if they don't get done And even better if you don't even put them on the list, you know, if you don't know that you're going to get to it and then set up your calendar, like look at your calendar and be like, when am I going to do what? And actually put those things that are on your list onto your calendar. And if you set that up the night before, um, and over time you'd get, you'll get better at being accurate with this. Um, then you're really going to be, you're going to set yourself up for success in a way that, um, will, will really help your day. Um, the problem is when you wake up and you're like, okay, now what?
0: Absolutely. I, I can't agree with you more on that because and I think a good morning routine starts with a good evening routine. And it's like if you're going to wake up at five in the morning before the sun's up, you need to have some objectives. Otherwise, it's just way too easy to just stay there curled up in your blanket and, and just, you know, snooze away 45 minutes.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't get up before the sun's up. <laughs> if I can possibly avoid it, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Have any idea what that's like?
0: <laughs> so people, people naturally have been and and as they get uh, the, uh, growing gills into their hands, they're going to be obviously turning to you for inspiration and ignition. And um, so, who do you turn to for that same kind of inspiration when you're stuck or in a slog?
1: In terms of. I guess in
0: terms of, in terms of your work and, uh, you know, when you're like the way some people might go to jessicaable.com or pick up growing gills and, and look to that to get them unstuck, you know, you're, you're, you Mm -hmm. are now that instrument for a lot of people. Um, who do you, and what do you turn to if you are similarly stuck?
1: I don't know that I get stuck in this, that exact, exact way. Um, what does inspire me, though, and gets me sort of thinking, you know, when I'm sort of like, I need to think through new things. I mean, I have a bunch of friends I've made and and sort of people I read who are in the... Um, like creative entrepreneurship area. And so I read stuff from them and they'll all of, often have really good stuff about setting goals and kind of getting strategic. You know, Cuz like as you can probably tell from what I'm talking about here like my big challenge right now is more the the big picture strategy than it is the day-to-day stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not about getting stuck day-to-day, it's going like, okay, is this the right thing to be doing? You know, am I making the right choice here? The right mountain. Um the right mountain exactly. Um, And so I I do get inspiration from people who have like a much sort of bigger strategic picture. And, you know, I follow um, Tara Gentile a lot. And she's uh, somebody who talks about this kind of larger goal setting stuff frequently. Um, She's not in the arts realm. um, So it's not that kind of thing. It's more like just thinking strategically in a a more generic sense, you know. Um, And then I get a lot of um, inspiration actually from students, From students who are in my creative focus workshop, which is the um, sort of my my course that is um, follows the growing gills methodology, essentially. Rather, growing gills follows the creative focus methodology Mm -hmm. more specifically. So those students, I have a lot of um, interaction with them both during the course and also like when they're finished and find out what's what what are they struggling with and what's going on with them, and then that will help me figure out what to write about and how to how to talk about these these topics. Um, and then also, um, the, uh, the students I have live here at Pafa, um, helping them and dealing with them, uh, you know, building their careers and figuring out how to handle, you know, being artists in the world and how to be grown ass humans. And that's like, that's really what I like talking about and teaching about. And so having these people around is, is inspiring to me in terms of doing the work.
0: And would you say that teaching has helped inform the creative work you still do?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Teaching has been, so I, earlier on I was like, I was afraid I was heading down this road that made it sound like I disrespect teachers. I totally don't love teachers. And the, the practice of teaching is absolutely essential for, learning, I think, you know, like mm-hmm. for me anyway, like the way I really learn stuff is by teaching it. So like one thing I've been doing is, for example, is I've been teaching what I call the story matrix workshop, which is derived from the story structures, the story formulas that are in the creative, I mean, in, um, out on the wire. So I've taught that a bunch of different times to different audiences and through doing that and dealing with what, what people, pick up when I talk about this stuff and what are they talking about and like what's hard for them and, and how do they misinterpret or interpret interestingly what it is that I'm trying to talk about. That is how I learn what should be in this workshop. You know, I wouldn't know otherwise, basically.
0: What excites you most about sort of this next little, this this little chapter of your life that's like stemming from the creative focus workshop and growing gills like what what excites you most as you go forward in the next few months or the next couple years
1: well i feel like i'm you know you're talking about like what is a successful artist and and i interpreted that as financially successful and you know life successful what i'm trying to do with my own learning as far as um creative focus and then also with the the way that i'm teaching it and doing the book and so on is trying to get to the point where I have that success, where I can be somebody who has enough involvement with students and activity and things going on in my life that I can, uh, have some freedom in my time and also get strategic enough that I make the right choices and don't overwhelm myself all the time with too much stuff. Cause that's my tendency is like to be workaholic and do too much. So I really, um, what excites me is working less basically <laughs> right. doing as much less as possible figuring out how to do that and still be the person I want to be to people still help people still, you know, make stuff that's valuable. Um, but do it without, uh, practically killing myself.
0: (laughs) Well, fantastic. Jessica, this was such a, such a pleasure to get to speak to you about your work and, um, What a a thrill. And the work you've done is inspiring and a a great service to the creative and artistic community. So, just uh, thank you so much for doing your work, being you, and uh, carving out some time to speak with me this morning. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. I appreciate you having me here. Really glad to talk to you.
0: Big thanks to Jessica for her work and a big thank you for listening. Hey, I've got a monthly newsletter where I send out my reading list for the month. Think of it as a book a week. Check out my website, brendanomera.com. You can also ping me on Twitter, at brendanomera, if you want to say hi. I don't bite. As some of you know, I can be a little bit nerdy. So I wanted to know if it would be a good idea to apply to Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Seems cool, right? If there was only someone I could talk to about this.
1: You know, people, I think, believe that I'm sort of magical. My students accuse accuse me of witchcraft occasionally. Hmm.
0: That's a lead. (laughs) All right. Until next week, when we delve into another in-depth interview with a purveyor of someone in, in the craft and genre of creative nonfiction. Thank you.